This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, former President Bill Clinton reflects on his role 20 years ago when the unthinkable occurred, a mass shooting at a high school in Colorado. Clinton was president when Columbine was attacked. CPR's Andrea Dukakis reports on how he and other U.S. presidents have served as consoler-in-chief. Can you describe the moment when you first heard about the shooting at Columbine High School? I can. When I first heard about it, I thought, not again, and even there. Hmm. There was something about this Columbine thing that just, you knew that it had now transcended uh, income, class, race, everything, that we were spiraling into some sort of a, culture of violence and gun violence in schools that really bothered me. Today, at his office in Midtown Manhattan, former President Bill Clinton remembers a lot about that day 20 years ago. He remembers the horror of learning that 13 people were killed and more than 20 others wounded at their high school. And he also remembers debating his role, what to say and what not to say, to the American people. My initial reaction is this is really serious and I need to go and say something now while being careful not to say something that's factually wrong. I need first for people to listen to what happened and to be with those people in spirit. The president decided there would be time for soul-searching about what he could do later. But at that moment, from behind a lectern at the White House, his job was to comfort people. To the families who have lost their loved ones, to the parents who have lost their beloved children, to the wounded children and their families, to the people of the community of Littleton, I can only say tonight that the prayers of the American people are with you. Thank you very much. It seems to be in more recent times that presidents have taken up this role of being consoler-in-chief. Doris Kearns Goodwin is a presidential historian. Her latest book is called Leadership in Turbulent Times. Goodwin says it's not just Clinton. Many of the other modern presidents have taken on this role of consoler-in-chief in times of crisis. Goodwin says it's not an entirely new thing either. The U.S. government was built on the idea. We don't have a president who's a king, nor is he simply a prime minister. He's the head of state and the head of government. So at moments of crisis, he becomes the person who is speaking for all of us, beyond our partisan ties. And it's a difficult challenge for them, but if they meet it, it really creates a sense, I think, of empathy on his part for these people and on the country's part for him. This is Since Columbine, a podcast from Colorado Public Radio about how one shooting 20 years ago changed America. Today, Clinton's role in soothing the nation after Columbine, and what Americans have come to expect from their presidents after national tragedies like mass shootings.
After that April day in 1999, Bill Clinton waited until things settled a bit. Then in May, he went to Colorado. I went as a parent. There is nothing worse in life than having a child die before you. And uh, I thought the, the whole country was heartbroken by it. And I don't think you can do everything long distance. I think I needed to be there in person. He first met privately with the families of the victims at a Catholic church, people who just suffered unthinkable loss. He just uh, consoled with them. He shed tears. Frank DeAngelis was the principal of Columbine High School back then and was with the president when he met with the families at the church. I was overcome, and I thought those families were a lot more important than whatever I had to say. That for just a moment... If the president is standing there listening to them talk about their children, it gives just a hair of respect that their kids' lives mattered. And sometimes just listening is way more important than whatever you have to say. I mean, I had already said to the country more or less all I had to say, but I needed to say it again to them. He had a hard time leaving the families, and I said, you know, President Clinton, we need to go because we had over 2,000 people waiting for it uh, Dakota Ridge. Dakota Ridge, the school where more Columbine families had gathered. Their own school was closed for the year. Barbara Perry is a presidential historian at the University of Virginia, which collects official oral histories of presidents dating back to Jimmy Carter. She's written about U.S. presidents as consolers, or comforters-in-chief, as she calls them. Bill Clinton was known, it became a little bit of a a catchphrase and almost a, a parody, but he was known for saying, I feel your pain. And Bill Clinton exuded, and to this day, exudes empathy. And she believes that what Clinton did after Columbine, Bush after 9-11, and Obama after Newtown, represents a shift in a culture that now asks everyone to feel and emote in public. I think that starts uh, with the the talk show circuit of maybe Phil Donahue and and Oprah uh, back in, I guess, the 70s and 80s. So presidents, I believe, have had to respond to that by becoming both the receivers of that kind of information and then coming back to the people as the therapist who listens to them, who, in Bill Clinton's terminology, feels their pain. Doris Kearns Goodwin agrees with Perry that there's been this cultural shift. Making private emotions public wasn't something leaders in the past did, though they did act as soothers. I mean, we certainly can look back in history, I suppose, to Lincoln's second inaugural, when we've come through a war that more than 600,000 people have died. And he talks about the fact that both sides shared the sin of slavery Both prayed to the same God. Neither's prayers were fully answered. And then the words we all remember with malice toward none and charity for all, let us bind up the nation's wounds. In 1933, Goodwin says Franklin Delano Roosevelt did much the same. I mean, you think about Franklin Roosevelt encountering the Depression and that first inaugural in some ways was consoling a nation. This great nation will endure. I mean, he's talking about the fact that he wasn't going to in any way minimize the terrible catastrophe they were facing. 
um, and that the facts required that we understand what this economic situation is about. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But then when he said the only thing to fear is fear itself, I mean, that's the same kind of consolation, I think, that the best of these presidents are giving. Barbara Perry also says Roosevelt had a rare gift for soothing the country at a time when many were suffering. Still, Clinton, particularly with Columbine, operated at a whole nother level. There are very few presidents as skilled as he in both being able to not only make people think he cares, but genuinely, I think, to care and to show people that he cares, combined with charisma, which is always a a helpful tool for presidents because it draws people to them. They kind of gather the people unto themselves. Something Ronald Reagan was able to do after the Challenger explosion. And Doris Kearns Goodwin points to how George W. Bush responded to 9-11. There's no question that President Bush, when he was at ground zero, and speaking through that bullhorn at World Trade Center, um, right in front of the victims and the first responders. And when he said, in response to someone in the audience saying, we can't hear you. I can hear you! I can hear you! The rest of the world hears you! And the people... Goodwin notes Bush's speech at Ground Zero did two things. It consoled the victims and assured the American people that the terrorists would be punished. And that was a tone of defiance. That's different in some ways than some of these other tones of Obama after Newtown or Clinton after Columbine or after the Oklahoma City bombing, where you're really just reaching out to comfort the people who's, for whom it's happened. UVA historian Barbara Perry says there's a line presidents have to draw. Sure, they can be emotional, but not artificial. She thinks about Obama after Newtown. He became tearful. Now, we typically don't want our presidents breaking down into sobs, but if a president genuinely is tearful and has to wipe away a tear, uh, that is a way to, it's not done on purpose, but it's a way to connect to the people. And I remember thinking at the time, here he had two little girls in grade school. We've endured too many of these tragedies in the past few years. And each time I learn the news, I react not as a president, but as anybody else would, as a parent. And that was especially true today. I know there's not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. The majority of those who died today were children, Uh, beautiful little kids between the ages of 5 and 10 years old. Obama pauses here for a few moments and has to compose himself. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. Tragedies have continued into President Trump's tenure. 
shootings, hurricanes, fires. Presidential historian Barbara Perry gives Trump low marks as comforter-in-chief. I don't think he will be considered, by virtue of his persona, an empathetic person or a person who naturally feels other people's pain. He is not um, a, a gifted orator in this space. Goodwin points to the fires in California as a good example. President Trump was quick to blame forest management before consoling the victims. At the same time, Goodwin says, there's a political dynamic when it comes to mass shootings and gun laws that makes being a consoler in chief more challenging. The debate over gun laws makes it harder for a president to reach out because immediately there's a political aspect to it. Are we going to say something about being more stringent about gun licenses and who's allowed to have guns? Clinton tried to thread the needle back in 1999 after Columbine. He wanted stricter gun laws. During that trip to console the community in Colorado, he told the crowd they now had the power to change things. I think one of the jobs that a president has when something like this happens is to try to set the stage when we're clearer headed and when our grieving stops to think about what happens, what we should do, what we owe the future. We know somehow that what happened to you has pierced the soul of America. And it gives you a chance to be heard in a way no one else can be heard by the president and by ordinary people in every community in this country. You can help us to build a better future for all our children. Clinton would have liked to see restrictions on gun sales after Columbine, comprehensive background checks. But he says politics got in the way. Still, even today, he hasn't given up hope. There are very few permanent victories and permanent defeats in politics. The ebb and flow of opinion and opportunity and chance, it changes. But there's some things that are worth fighting for for a very long time. Columbine also helped Clinton fight for a shared sense of humanity. He remembers quoting a Bible verse on the night of the shooting 20 years ago. St. Paul reminds us that we all see things in this life through a glass darkly, that we only partly understand what is happening. Nobody ever has the whole truth. doesn't mean there's no truth, but it means that it's crazy to be a fanatic and jam other people all the time with sanctimony when we, as human beings, part of the human condition is humility and love of your fellow human beings, communal love. So I started trying to explain that to people. And I thought thought it belonged at that moment. Clinton remembers wanting to make sure nobody forgot what happened that day 20 years ago. That's why he thinks it's important for a president to give solace in times of crisis. We don't know each other's stories anymore. We're used to treating each other like two-dimensional cartoons, not three-dimensional people. 
It's why he visited Littleton, Colorado, not just on that day, but several times over the past 20 years. So Columbine became real to me and a lot and millions of other Americans. And that's one of the things a president's supposed to do in a crisis is make sure that it doesn't become a fleeting thing on the news. Somehow, more than anything else, America's got to recover the ability to spend a little time every day feeling like they do when there's a horrible crisis like that. Clinton has remained deeply connected to Columbine, and not just in his thoughts. He helped the community raise money and finish the Columbine Memorial. He contributed his own money to it. And he still talks on the phone with Columbine High School's former principal, Frank DeAngelis. I like them. I like DeAngelis and all those people that just wouldn't give up, you know. I like the fact that they still care. Through, you know, real life returned to them, you know. They're the ones who had kids. The kids grew up. The other things happened. Misfortunes occurred in their lives. They got sick. They got well. They whatever. But they still care. And if they still care, somebody needs to be willing there to walk with them. CPR's Andrea Dukakis with our radio and podcast series Since Columbine. It's about how the shootings 20 years ago now changed America. When we come back, an anonymous tip line meant to prevent another Columbine. How it has worked, how it has fallen short. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A new Colorado Public Radio podcast explores how a shooting 20 years ago changed the country. I want to bring you up to date at the shooting at Columbine High School. People of the community of Littleton, the prayers of the American people are with you. Now survivors of the attack have their own kids. I didn't really tell you about Columbine until you were 11 years old. And a whole scientific field has emerged to stop the next shooter. Search for Since Columbine wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After Columbine, there was a lot of soul-searching, even a statewide study, to see if school shootings could be prevented. That's how Safe to Tell began. The 24-hour tip line takes anonymous reports. If someone seems like a threat to others or to themselves, it has been replicated across the country. Safe to Tell's founder is Susan Payne. She recently stepped down and a new director was named, but Payne's work on this issue continues. We asked her to reflect on Safe to Tell's successes, shortcomings, and its potential. Payne has had a long career in law enforcement. She's been a hostage negotiator, a special agent in charge of school safety for Homeland Security, and she's a parent. Hi, Susan. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, a Secret Service study showed that about 80% of the time when there was a school shooting, someone knew and didn't speak up. Most often, it was a young person who didn't speak up. And nine out of 10 assailants had a history of concerning behavior, red flags of some kind. In short, it seems that kids tend to know before adults what's going on. Does that sync up with what you've found over the years? Absolutely. Uh Originally, I was the, uh, as a DARE officer or a school resource officer, young people know long before adults what's going on in their schools. When young people show up in a field to fight and there's a 50 to 100 of them, they all knew what they were going there for. And we need to break down that code of silence and make sure they know when to tell and that they have the courage to tell 
um, really is reliant on having a safe, protected method of speaking up so that adults can intervene. And that had not existed officially, if you will, before Safe to Tell. Right. So we knew we had to move forward in a very direct, tangible way. The Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence and the Attorney General at the time, Ken Salazar, um, there was a listening tour, and I was able to go on it with Dr. Elliott and Attorney General Ken Salazar, and young people told us over and over that they feared retaliation, that they wanted to be able to speak up, but that we had to do something tangible to make it happen. Uh, Susan, I'm sure you've been asked this since day two of Safe to Tell, uh, and it's asking you in a way to prove a negative. But do you have evidence that Safe to Tell has prevented attacks on schools? We know it has prevented attacks on schools, and we have to do a better job of sharing the successes. So when we see the numbers and the data-informed approach of what comes in and what the results are, that's where we know we've been able to make a difference and prevent a tragedy. Give me an example, then. Uh Many examples, but I can think of one that I would like to talk about would be young people online, online, uh, playing games online. And one says, I have to go study. And another one says, if I'm not on tomorrow night, I'll be dead. And another young person questions them and says, what do you mean by that? And he talks about a massacre at his school and deciding if he was going to kill himself or have someone kill him. So you look at that kind of communication that's taken place, it really backs up the Secret Service study that 81% of the time these things are leaked or broadcast in advance. Now we have to turn that into reporting and knowing that the adults are going to do something. Okay, so that's a real-world example. Uh, was that a young man who said that? Was that was a young man, and it ended up being in Biloxi, Mississippi. So we also know that we can't control jurisdictional boundaries with the social norms of young people today. And this program has been replicated elsewhere. This is not the only safe-to-tell program. Right, we have it in Wyoming, here. Nevada. Some of them use a different name to customize it to their own states. Um, Michigan is okay to say. We're working with, since Parkland, 24 states I've been advising on helping them to replicate this framework. I want to go back to this idea, Susan, of the attack that you think it helped prevent in Biloxi, Mississippi. So a young person uh, reported this threat made over a video game, a multiplayer game. And then what happens? Help us understand how the safe-to-tell operators, you call them analysts, what they're trained to do. Well, first of all, obviously a young person was the hero that saw that and that this is concerning, this is a threat, um, recognized it for what it was and made the report. So that's the first hero. Then it comes into an answering point that is able to engage and discuss, can you send us a video of this? Can you send us the screenshot? But in that specific case, they were able to give us the username of the person and the specific threat. But they're looking for evidence. They're looking for something that, that makes this not a false report, I suppose. You're looking to determine the credibility uh, we don't want young people to have to decide if it's real. If they're hearing something that causes concern, we want to make sure that there's a adult that takes that information and we get it to the team in the field, the multidiscipline team at the school and law enforcement level that knows that their students the best. Is that what happens in the Biloxi case? And that's exactly... We never know the jurisdictional boundaries, especially with social media today. In that case, the person that made that threat online to probably a Colorado student um, ended up being in Biloxi, Mississippi. And in the middle of the night, law enforcement went into that home 
and the young person swore that he was never going to do it, but they were able to remove several weapons, um, computers, and it was an intervention of someone that was broadcasting their pathway to violence. So that's what we know we have to do is intervene early. I know that one thing that surprised you after Safe to Tell's founding was that it alerted you not just to externalized violence, so violence against other students, but it also alerted you to the threat of suicide. So the, it's a very data-informed approach. What we have is what's coming in and what's going out. What young people are reporting, that gives us a look into their shoes. And we can see there's a lot of hurting, struggling young people out there. And this is sort of that new perspective where for years it was if you were hurting or struggling with addiction or feeling sad and depressed, you would seek help on your own. But what we know are their friends, siblings, peers, parents that see someone struggling. And that has been the number one reported incident time and time again. Last year, 2,800 specifically about a friend that was suicidal or making a threat to take their own life. You point to Safe to Tell successes, and yet we have seen more school shootings. We know that the youth suicide rate is particularly high in Colorado. Do you look at that and think, I'm not sure how well this has worked, or the problem is just so much bigger than Safe to Tell? Well, I think we really focused on the research of what we knew, and we put something tangible tangible in place to make sure that um, if there's a student out there that is seeing something, they don't have to fear retaliation or social exclusion for speaking up. But on the other side of it, we still have to do a better job to implement best practices and to get a little further upstream to build resiliency and life skills with young people, social emotional learning, uh, educating them on what to look for when to speak up, lowering that threshold, and knowing there's a team of adults ready to respond and do something. Give us an example of a red flag, if you will, something that you wish young people were alert to that they're not. Well, I like to focus on the behaviors. If someone is withdrawn, sad, depressed, if they've, they're struggling with a perceived injustice to them, um, have had um, uh, struggling with some sort of trauma, um, bullying, whatever it may be, I try to get focused on the behaviors. But anyone that is making a threat or using rehearsal behavior or writings or saying things on social media or posting pictures of concern, those are red flags. And that's something that we must respond to because that's where we know that that's the leakage, that's the broadcast in advance, and young people are on the front lines. What you've described there is true of any given teenager on any given day. Um I can imagine a young person thinking, well, I don't want the bar to be too low to call into an anonymous tip line. Um, I'm creating perhaps uh, an emergency or urgency where it's not necessary. And that's where we really want to be able to talk about what what are the norms today? What is concerning? When does it go over the line? When can it be um, something that you're watching unfold that is a threat to someone's safety or your own. So that's really where they have to have that internal gut to make that decision. And then there has to be an adult that decides, is this credible? Is it real? What are we finding as we follow up? How do we assess risk, threat, and social media? Social media. I'm glad you mentioned it. <laughs> How has Safe to Tell had to evolve well, we've in, had into this age where it may be that bullying happens online, you know. So for me, I have three children, Air Force pilot. My daughter's getting her master's and my baby's a junior in high school. And I look at 
I had to be one of those parents that had to text them to come to dinner. Or <laughs> I had to get on Snapchat if I wanted to see the stories they were sending out. So we knew we had to change in order to reach young people. We had to provide online methods of reporting. We had to provide a mobile app, but we still continue to monitor what they're using. And it's still a breakdown where... What do you mean we are continuing to monitor? Well, we continue to look at the data across the country of what method are young people using to report. In Colorado, last year, we saw about 30% using a mobile app. Uh, You can certainly look at Um, about more than 70% are using an online method to communicate a concern. And still about 22% are making a phone call directly. Okay. When do most tips come into Safe to Tell? I'm just curious. Well, what we've seen in the past um, is usually 9 o'clock on Fridays, the weekends. I was on call for the past 20 years, 24-7. 9 in the evening? 9 in the evening on a Friday is one of those peak times. But again, we, we have to continue to monitor the data. Um, we definitely find that the research that says that young people are more at risk is after school hours when they're out on their own. So those hours after school into the wee hours of the morning can be a really risky time for young people to engage in behaviors of concern. We're talking about Safe to Tell Colorado, which grew out of the Columbine attack 20 years ago. This round-the-clock anonymous tip line meant to prevent school shootings, but that also proved itself useful in helping prevent suicide as well among young people. Has the program been abused? I mean, has it been used as a form of harassment? I even wonder if it reflects any racial bias. So we tend to, we really look at anything that comes in that looks like a misuse in the past of when someone would use it to hurt another. Yeah. So we've. So that's occurred? That has occurred. I think the data shows that that's about 3% of the time. If you go to the Colorado Attorney General's website, that's on those data reports. But when you look at that, you know, that's still a significant number of young people. And we don't want. Um, anybody to use it. So we really look at investigative strategies. And actually, some of the other states, um, their laws aren't as as stringent as the anonymity in Colorado. So Nevada, for one, has um, changed the law to where if it's being if there's probable cause to believe there's misuse, that it can be traced or backed to the person that is using it for that reason. And potentially prosecuted, I suppose. Yes. You talked about the need for support way before a call comes into Safe to Tell, that young people need to be more resilient in the face of of any number of things in life these days. If it's, you know, bullying on social media or the hardships they experience at home, that must feel like the unsolvable problem or the the very difficult problem to solve, because doesn't that involve mental health? And doesn't that involve uh, the kind of staffing you have at schools? And doesn't that involve, gosh, the opioid epidemic? I mean, it seems like it might connect to any number of things in society that are beyond your control. So it does feel very overwhelming. But when we can kind of look at what's working, that's what we want to share. How do we train for this? How do we prepare? How do we prepare children to face disappointment, failure, or loss? Because we know that's going to happen. So preparing them for whatever trauma they might have, they might be exposed to and making sure that they have a mindset of what are their tools, what they are going to respond the way that they are trained, just like responders in the field. So if we can teach them healthy solutions for dealing with with what they might face, 
we can prepare them better. Do you think that that would prevent school shootings? I think it can prevent all kinds of things. I want them to be aware. I want them to be part of the solution. Um, We're even seeing it right now. Um, The chief of the Secret Service, National Threat Assessment, and I talking with Parkland on the trauma that occurred in the Parkland tragedy and now the experience of youth suicide. Yeah, let me say that you're working now with the Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence and with the Secret Service National Threat Assessment Center. Uh, And you're involved in communities that have dealt with trauma like Parkland, Florida, where they're dealing with secondary deaths after trauma. That is, people who've survived a mass shooting and later take their own lives because it's been such an awful experience for them. Talk to talk to us about that. So that's the important thing of understanding how do we prepare in the aftermath for that new normal? And that could be a school shooting. It could be a car accident that results in death that traumatizes a community. And we have to prepare and really focus on prevention of secondary death and making sure that that crisis response includes support. Um, but that there's also that ability to try to teach young people how to grieve in healthy ways. And it's not just a one-time event. It's, it really is um, a lifetime of recovery for people like the Columbine tragedy here. Are you saying that the aftermath of trauma is a new normal in this country? I think it is a new normal. Uh, and, you know, everybody has their own unique what trauma have I experienced? That's where we have to take the time to listen to young people and see what's going on in their shoes. What what are their struggles? What are their things that they're overcoming? And how do we provide that positive culture and climate in any school to build relationships um, beyond the social media that might be um, – young people might be using social media to an extent that they're not – as comfortable socially and in person. So doing little things like making sure young people are greeting their classmates at the door or interactive things to build that communication and making sure that we as adults are building relationships with our students because that's what we really want. The number one protective factor in a child's life is having a caring, committed adult. And the more of those that we can create in the different roles that they have in school, in in church, in the community. Um, the IRL, the IRL stuff, the in real life stuff has to happen. It has That's to happen. That's what you're learning. In this discussion, I think what um, perplexes me is that young people have always faced trauma and hardship, right? But there weren't always school shootings, the nature of which we see today. What, what shifted? What changed? I imagine that you've wrestled with this over the decades. I think we've all wrestled with it, but I think the exposure, the lessons learned from the tragedy at Columbine, right now in the Federal Commission report, um, I had the opportunity to brief the Federal Commission, many experts around the country. Which commission is this? This is the Federal Commission on School Safety um, that was held at the White House and did listening tours around the country. But part of it is making sure that there's a no notoriety campaign, that we are focusing on the victims and the exposure the exposure that young people have in today's world, the things that we used in the olden days, or what I would say the Columbo method, which young people don't even know who Columbo is. So. He was an investigator. He was uh, <laughs> on television coat. with a rumpled yeah. coat and could never find a pen. But what, what, what are you saying? There? I'm saying that we used to use methods like we redact the young person's name in the police report, and we don't say the cause of death. And people really didn't know how the student died. In today's exposure, young people are Snapchatting at the scene. 
Um, they know when a friend has died by suicide or someone has taken their own life and there are they're not always healthy in their communication. What comes out with the exposure is absolutely through a fire hose. We've covered as part of Since Columbine, this series and podcast, the No Notoriety Movement, uh, and how many people have signed on to that. Certainly in law enforcement, for instance, uh, we use the names of assailants only as necessary. In the last few seconds here, how has this changed you as a parent, this kind of work, Susan? You know, it's it's made me feel like I have to prepare as if it could happen here. I have to prepare that my my children would be exposed to drinking. I, I never thought my kids would experience a friend's suicide or a friend's opioid addiction. I thought they went to a school where that would never occur. And the bottom line is we have to prepare them as if they're going to be faced with those concerns and make sure that we are well informed and on social media ourselves. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Susan Payne founded Safe to Tell Colorado after the Columbine massacre, which took place 20 years ago. It has since become a national model. Payne recently stepped down as director. Tomorrow, she participates in an event called Uniting to Prevent School Violence on the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. It explores what's been learned since Columbine and what obstacles remain to prevent future violence. There's a teacher shortage in rural Colorado. State lawmakers hope new financial incentives for student teachers who commit to rural areas will help. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine traveled with a group of urban college students to some remote districts in southeastern Colorado. Here's how some of the college students describe their invasion of tiny Springfield, Colorado. So the first day was really interesting. 20 students from the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs and Colorado College. We walked into the restaurant. One of two restaurants in Springfield. And everybody turned and stared at us. Those looks. We get those looks like, like, what are 20 college students doing here? Where are they from? They're not from here. So like, you definitely kind of realize that Living in this area, like, everyone knows everyone. But the town's folks were super friendly, students say. Just curious and welcoming. The students would be spending the next week in six schools in six districts, among the most isolated in Colorado. They weren't used to abandoned buildings on Main Street or empty sidewalks. One student says she relaxed a little as soon as she saw a Dollar General store. Like, I can do this. Many of these students have never experienced rural life or what it's like to teach in a tiny school. I've never even heard of a graduating class of one. And that's one of the goals of the immersion program created by two professors, one of them, Mike Tabor. I think our goal is a little bit of trying to understand this generation and what would motivate them to want to be a rural teacher. How do we make that connection happen? Tabor says the purpose of the trip isn't to line up jobs for the students, but to expose them to the advantages and the challenges in being a rural teacher. A big part, though, is helping them understand the culture and the landscape before they even get inside a classroom. On a Sunday drive to Picture Canyon in the Comanche National Grasslands, students silently look out the window. Tabor points out a ferruginous hawk. You know, just being able to look for the things that you normally wouldn't look for. You realize that the world here has its own geography and its own space and its own place, and it's different. They wonder about how long that novelty would last. 
Tabor tells them it's important to connect to the place where you're going to teach. And here at the beginning of the trip, some of them have their doubts. Samaya Kelly. For me, like I've always lived in Denver. I've always only been like five minutes away from something. She says the big spaces between things to do. That's very unknown and uncomfortable for me. Tabor asks whether they think they'd ever be able to move out of their comfort zone. One way or another, most likely won't end up teaching where they grew up. The next morning in class, North Carolina, South Carolina. Emily Maine sits in tiny Campo School, just north of the Oklahoma border. She attends the private Colorado College, way out of her comfort zone. As the first in her family to go to college, she's open to the rural option. Who wants to be first, you or me? She watches the teachers spending lots of one-on-one time with students. There are just six kids in this mixed-grade class. It's so individualized. Like, I couldn't picture this in an urban setting because it's just so hard to do with so many students. They completely run amok. Do you guys know what amok means? Denverite Samaya Kelly, meantime, has fit in quite fine reading books to kindergartners. She, too, is amazed by how strong teachers' relationships are with each child. Just being able to constantly track where they were and being able to break everything down to fit one person and their academic needs and their social-emotional needs. This is something important to her. She was homeless for a while in middle school, feeling at times lost in a sea of faces each time she changed schools. Another college student, Ellen Laux, was struck by something else. In her own years in large high schools, she says students felt like school was more of a chore or an obligation, like a monotonous grind of pre-planned lessons. But here, with lessons tailored to each student... I didn't see one single student who looked disengaged or bored with being at school. And even the staff at the school, the superintendent, the secretaries, everyone was just super engaged and had a huge heart for the kids. And everyone in town comes out for the school basketball game. The game gave the college students a taste for how teachers are regarded. And Yabras says, unlike in urban areas... Rural Colorado teachers are looked very highly upon, like they're basically the role models. But she says the public eye could be a challenge for some teachers. Everybody knows your business and everything about you. And so just making sure that you're keeping it very professional, even outside of the school district. That matters especially, she says, because many of the social and political norms she grew up with are different here. Those norms come out at the students' nightly reflection sessions at the local Lions Club, Sandra Curry, who is African-American, wonders how much diversity the students are exposed to. Um, I had one kindergartner. I was, like, talking with him, and then he randomly just touched my skin, and he was like, oh, I've never touched a black person before. And I thought that was, like, kind of weird, but I'm like, he's in kindergarten. Other students were surprised by some teachers' comments, like how one likes working in a school because the superintendent is politically conservative. Or another saying she would skip a lesson about Martin Luther King because the school has no black students. We'll find this across the state. We really will. Mike Tabor points out many veteran educators wouldn't have had training on teaching about diversity. And that's something these students will have to grapple with as they move into teaching. You'll begin to realize that that you're going to be challenged by the vernacular used by that classroom teacher. You're going to be challenged by their ideologies and their philosophies about kids and learning and the labels that they're going to throw out there because they've been throwing them out there for 30 years. 
They'll have to decide whether to let things stand or introduce new cultures and ideas, just as teachers here have given them an unvarnished view of rural schools. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. In the end, whether someone chooses to teach in a rural setting is deeply personal. For someone like Kara Friedman from Los Angeles, going rural is likely too much of a leap. I don't think that I have the hobbies or like the pastimes to entertain myself out here. It's just too different. Several students, though, say they could see themselves in a rural community. Emily Maine. It's quiet and peaceful and like definitely for me, that'd be really nice to have just because growing up when there's a hustle bustle, you always to be doing something from like 4 a.m. to like 8 p.m. It's like... Oh, that can get old. <laughs> Others are attracted by the fact that some districts offer affordable housing. Brittany Wagner likes the challenge of wearing multiple hats. I get to teach music. I get to teach English. I get to, and multiple grades even. So that, that to me is really exciting if I do teach in a rural school. Even if the Colorado Springs education students decide not to teach in rural Colorado, this immersion has helped them learn more about themselves and what they value in the teaching profession. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. A Denver couple found an old trunk in their attic from World War II, and it led them on a reverse treasure hunt. Who was the original owner, and how did it get there? CPR's Avery Lill has the answers. An old trunk sat in the attic of Ed and Kate Morton's home. Stickers plastered on the side told them that it had been shipped from Sweden to New York, with a stop in Liverpool. Inside were handmade tools, including a hammer and a slide rule, and on the back of one, a clue to its origin. On the pieces of wood that were found was a name called Harry Freeberg. But who was he, and what did he have to do with their 1890s home? Martin's curiosity took him to the internet and to the Denver Public Library. It turned out that this family had moved into the home back in 1910. Martin believes Harry Freeberg immigrated to the United States from Sweden with his family and that he was working as a printmaker when he was drafted to fight in World War I. He had died about a month before the World War I armistice, October 6th in 1918. And I think he was listed as having died of consumption or disease. Freeberg was 25 years old when he passed away in northern France and didn't have any children. But he did have two sisters who lived in the Denver home where the Martins live now. Ed was able to track down one of Freeberg's great-great-nephews, this man. He asked in a message, are you related to John Harry Horst? I'm like, okay, I probably should follow up with this guy because that's my grandfather's name. The Horsts are Freeberg's closest living ancestors. That's John Horst there, and he was a little freaked out by a stranger on the internet asking about his grandpa. But when Martin sent him photos of the chest and the tools, Horst started asking around. He did indeed have a great-uncle Harry, who died young. A few weeks ago, John Horst, who lives in Thornton, visited the Martins, who gave him the trunk and the tools inside. Just to meet him in person was amazing in itself because I'm like, this guy knows more about our family than I do. And he found it all out on the Internet. Just something that kind of demonstrates, you know, history is not just in a book. It's something that's right here in your own family. Returning the chest was important to Ed Martin as a way of honoring Freeberg's life and legacy. And now he said he's on to researching his own family's story. I'm Avery Lill, CPR News. Finally today, our Master Gardener is coming back on soon to answer your questions about tomatoes and tiger lilies. So get us your questions. Email news at CPR.org. Your questions, news at CPR.org. 
or you can hit me up on Twitter at CPR Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News.